to Freshly Forever, a podcast that gives you fascinating insights week after week. Here's your host, Vai Kumar. Hey folks, I'm here today with the amazing Melvin Williams, who is the most sought-after sports performance uh, professional here in the southern part of the United States and not just the south, but all along the length and breadth of the country and internationally with athletes as well. Uh, Melvin has been the managing partner and director of human performance for the Infinite Sports Performance Group since 2003. And Melvin has trained and consulted over 200 professional athletes across the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, ATP, WTA tennis tours, and several Olympic athletes in both the Winter and Summer Olympics, including Olympic athlete Lauren Williams. NFL Pro Bowlers, Terrell Owen, Santana Moss, Antonio Cromarty, and Deshaun Jackson, former ATP professionals, Ruben Statham and James McGee, and rising WTA star Haley Baptist. Melvin's training philosophy is centered around improving functional power, increasing core stability and eccentric strength, increasing fluid movement and static flexibility, and reducing synergistic dominance and neuromuscular deficiencies. Melvin currently serves as a consultant and mental coach for multiple athletes across various organizations and serves as the personal mental and conditioning consultant for numerous current NFL, USTA, and ITF athletes. Melvin has developed a keen interest in behavioral science and operates a newly launched program with the Infinite Tennis Performance Center entitled The Bear is Always There, Learning How to Dominate in the Hunt. This program specializes in helping athletes overcome mental challenges in sports and not fearing the presence of anxiety, stress, or other apex athletes. And it's my honor and privilege to welcome Melvin Williams on the show Hey, Melvin. Hello. Good to see you, Vi. Always a pleasure. So let's just start with how your life was as a youth and what sports you were involved in. Okay. Well, I was a multi-sport athlete. Um, I had the luxury of having um, parents that were pretty gifted physically. So I got, I got a little lucky uh-huh. on the DNA side of the fence. So I played uh, baseball, I ran track, and I played tennis. Um, track and tennis were my two primary sports. Uh-huh. Back, back then, there were two primary sports <laughs> based on the season. Um, and, you know, I was a really, really good track athlete, and I was a good tennis player. Um, so for me, sports were a basic part of my life. It was scheduled into my day and, you know, I loved it. There was, there was very little time. I was either reading or playing sports. I didn't have a screen. I didn't have a screen very much. Oh, I think you were gifted. I should say. (laughs) (laughs) I was lucky. I lucky. The screens are such a distraction right now. It was great to just be able to go outside and then come in and read and then go outside again. That was great. Absolutely. And I think just to give everyone, the listeners, a context here, I think we are talking 30, 35 years ago. And so how was the scenario then in terms of kids taking to sports aside from schoolwork and participating in athletics? So it was really interesting because um, in the area I grew up, I grew up in the South. And um, it was interesting because sports in the South 
are virtually a part of life. Uh-huh. So we even had times in our school day where only the athletes were in the gym mm-hmm. doing their classes or working out. You could have your workout session as part of your PE. So it was actually built into our curriculum. Um, it was it was also easier for you to manage your schoolwork because if you were on the athletic side of the fence, you had a programming hour at the end of the day. It was They used to call it serendipity period. So it was seventh period. You could either leave early uh-huh. and if your, work were, if your work was completed and you could go to your practice sessions early. So do your warm-ups or your stretching or your rehab or whatever you had to do. Or you could use it as a study period. If your grades dropped, Mm -hmm. you had no choice. Your seventh period was now study hall. Um, But if your grades were, you know, 3-0 or higher, you could leave in that seventh period and begin your athletic training. Um, So it was (laughs) – there there was no such thing as school and athletics. They were – both conjoined. And on our, for example, on our tennis team, we had two kids who went division one and uh, one went to Notre Dame and he was, you know, arguing with me about who was going to be valedictorian, mm-hmm. you know? And so it, well, there wasn't a situation like we have now where some kids were here, some kids were there, some kids couldn't train until three, some kids trained at 9am. No, this was, everyone trains at the same time. And everyone is either in study hall or they're getting together earlier. So it was uh, it was very different than the environment we're in now. They're, they're, the recruiters came to the school. They met with your guidance counselor. They would pull you out of class if they wanted to talk to you about a scholarship. Your parents would be there at lunchtime. Uh-huh. Everyone freaked out. As soon as you see your parents' car, you already know, okay, I'm either going to the guidance counselor or the principal. Which one is it going to be? <laughs> <laughs> so... And if both were there, then you really had a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. So was it common for both boys and girls to be involved in sports from school days on through college playing the NCAAs? Yes. um, And so it it was very interesting. We were very... um, for lack of a better term, we were very segregated boys and girls in terms of the times that we were in the facility because I went to a Catholic school that converted from public school. They were public for the majority of the time they were, they were there. And then they converted to the GISA, which in Georgia is the independent school association. So the independent schools now are made up of both private schools and then the, the rivers and the, the Laurel Springs homeschool programs, they all participate in kind of the independent school system now. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was there, they were transitioning from the GHSA, which was the public school system. So being a Catholic school, a Catholic independent school, there was a lot of separation between the boys and the girls and what they did day to day, but the programming was the same. Um, the girls just had a different time where where they would be in the gym and the guys had a different time where they would be in the gym. And there were some co-ed events um, just, you know, for participation purposes, mixed doubles, things like that. Um, but for the most part, there wasn't a huge difference um, between what the girls were doing and what the guys were doing. Everyone had a goal. Very few people talked about pro sports back then. Um, that was mostly on the, on the football side. And then on the track side, we would talk about the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate that I was kind of in that conversation nationally about track. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and then an injury took me out, which is kind of a conversation for another day. But <laughs> that was uh, it, it was an interesting time because to say you were preparing to be a pro athlete when you know in the eighties and nineties was very different than today. You were not identified that soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, I think we identify children very early and sometimes too early. But I'm sure we'll we'll have a chance to talk about that. <laughs> As we move on, uh-huh. um, but the girls and the boys were primarily in the same path. Everyone wanted to get to the best school possible. Division one athletics back then was it was amazing. It was like oh, I can go to a great school and play sports. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic! Oh yeah, best you know, of both worlds scenario. Yes, it was not a presumed thing. It was not. Oh, I'm going. I'm going to get a scholarship, and I don't know, I'll figure out school later. No, <laughs> no. you need to know what you're going to do with school. And then we'll talk about the sports situation. Okay, fantastic. So how is it that the trend changed and now everyone is involved in so many things? It almost seems like things were compartmentalized sort of back then, like everyone did, okay, school during school time. And then, you know, when they had to play, they play. Uh, but kind of like everything was like uh, it happened in sequence in their day. But now kids have no time to relax or breathe with overwhelming schoolwork and practices. And also, like, it seems like people have started taking to competition, like, more uh, rigorously, if you will. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I think for me, and this is a, this is a difficult conversation to have with parents, um, not every parent is always prepared to have this conversation, right? It's because no one wants to believe that anything has changed. Everyone likes to believe that sport is the same, competition is the same. And the reality is that over the years, the win now mentality has caused a huge shift in the landscape of sports. Um, so I think for me, The win-now mentality has changed the environment for sports. Um, when, I was, when I was a child, the emphasis was more on human development and learning how to compete as a function of your growing up. Uh-huh. Um, now, it's about learning how to compete so you can win at everything. Mm-hmm. And I think when we made the shift from athletics as a development and then the child learns how to compete the child learns how to manage stress and the child can apply that to their life as a whole when we shifted from that to you're only doing this so you can beat up on everyone and so you can win everyone and, and have all of the trophies and you can make the money in the sport when we changed to that perspective mm-hmm. i think we began to damage the atmosphere and the environment of sports a little bit And the trend changed from this is a developmental thing. This is a mental strength. This is something that makes you stronger as a person. It changed from that to I just want you to win. And I don't really care about all that other stuff. And I think we're doing the kids a great disservice um, by putting the emphasis on win, 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 no matter what the pressure is. So it almost is like a huge transition to the achievement culture Yes. What role do you think parents had 
or parents have had in that? Uh, or has it been just peer pressure or has it been uh, what overall the sports system as such has enforced? What caused this shift? So I think it's, it's, it's threefold. Number one, I think that coaches and parents began to walk away from the mental health aspect of athletics. Mm-hmm. I think athletics, first and foremost, was a mental health issue. Um, kids were able to exercise, were able to go out and see friends, were able to compete together, make jokes together in a healthy environment. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't this environment. That, when you were bullied uh, in the 80s and 90s, the whole team saw it and the whole team reacted to it and your friends reacted to it and they took a stand. Mm-hmm. Now you could be bullied on the side from a DM and Instagram and no one knows. And that child carries that. And initially sports were, were a safe place. Now you had, you know, you had the jocks who were obviously like, well, I'm better than you. So I'm going to be this and I'm going to be that. And, you know, but they were managed because you had a group of five or six kids then versus, you know, one-on-one interactions on a side somewhere where if you were the smaller or weaker person, you, you were kind of, and you were, you weren't able to defend yourself in that situation. But back then you could deal with it and you could manage it. And, I think we lost that mental health aspect of it. If that was healthy mm-hmm. to see a team develop, to see people build a community inside of a sport, you know, with that common struggle, it's difficult for a child to understand what it means to um, have a particular race or to have a particular this, that, or the other. But it's easy for a child who's running alongside another child to say, man, these miles are getting longer and longer and longer. And when are we going to finish? And they can have that conversation together. I think that was the first part of it. The second part was when people started to assign value to the win versus value to the physical and, 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 and mental development. Somewhere along the line, we started to get this kind of Spartan mentality of, okay, athletics are Sparta, and we're going to do everything we can to make sure Sparta has all of the trophies. And (laughs) what's interesting is even in Spartan methodology, it was the way they taught. It was their teaching method. It was their family. It was their community that allowed them to be great warriors. Mm -hmm. They had a unified family message, and that message was, we grow up and we do this and we do this and we do that. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in there, we switched from that unified family message to kill everybody, let God sort them out. It's just you. You're the only one that needs to win. And that, and that added to the problem. And the third thing, and I don't know if this is the most significant thing or if it's just the most painful thing. Parents began, and coaches, and I've, I was guilty of it as a young coach, mm-hmm. coaches began to assign value to individuals based on their ability to do the things that other players could not do. Uh-huh. And we, we began trying to create these kind of cyborg athletes instead of these well-formed you know, athletes who are able to live inside of themselves mm-hmm. and, and learn themselves and learn who they wanted to be and what they wanted to be. 
And we started trying to say, if you can't be the Incredible Hulk or Wonder Woman or Superman, then you don't need to be here. And I don't think athletics was ever intended to be that. Mm -hmm. That's why there's so many different sports. You know, if you couldn't play tennis, maybe you could play handball. If you couldn't play handball, maybe you could swim. If you couldn't swim, maybe you could run. Sports in and of itself is a reflection of the world. There are so many different sports with so many different things. And somewhere we lost those three things. Yeah, that's uh, very sad that such a thing happened. And I know you have played multiple sports. And so what sports, again, um, did you focus on for a certain length of time? Like for how long did you play each sport? And what is the benefit of playing multiple sports? So um, I started to focus on track and tennis around 12. Um, they were kind of complementary to one another um, because I was a servant volley player. So I didn't use a lot of lateral movement when I played tennis. Mm -hmm. I was really fast. So I would serve and try to get to the net as quickly as possible. And that was great uh, during my era because we didn't have a lot of the newer technology that the kids have today. So passing shots weren't as easy as they were today. Now it's tougher to find a servant volleyer because of technology, but that's a conversation for another day as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I began to focus on track and tennis and it worked out because they were in differing seasons. And so the, the heavy tennis schedule with a lot of the larger events did not interrupt the larger track and field events. And I was a, multi-sport competitor even inside of track i ran the 200 the 200 meters a four by 100 and i threw javelin so um both the javelin complemented tennis very well because of the serving motion and throwing a javelin the the internal rotation and all of the pronation and all the different things that are going on there so mm -hmm. without getting too technical oh no wonder um, you uh served and volleyed your way then yeah, they made it made it easy because you're it's at that running head start with <laughs> with the javelin. So, um, I uh, I it was interesting because my parents were um, highly intelligent. My father is a PhD and and a law degree. Uh, mother has a, a MBA, and so my parents were very analytical in their approach to athletics. So. It was once you get to a place where you don't overthink every single thing, mm -hmm. then you can start to specialize. And I played tennis for, uh, let's see, I started when I was nine. I started track probably when I was five. Mm -hmm. So I spent most of my life to seven, all the way to 17 years old um, running track and playing tennis, played some baseball. I played baseball for about four years. Uh, baseball was too slow for me. I always had to stop and wait. I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't like soccer at the time. Soccer wasn't popular in the community. But what all of those different sports did, they, they complemented one another. Uh, tennis helped me see when I was behind in a track meet and I needed to relax and get into that next gear. And track helped me realize the importance the premium on efficient footwork because most people don't realize in track you can count the exact number of steps it will take for you to get to the finish and you know when you're off and in tennis sometimes i think people forget there's only a certain number of steps you need to take to get here there and the rest is an adjustment and so i think 
playing multiple sports allows you to take pieces from all of the different sports and enhance what's in your chosen sport. One of the things that I that drives me insane mm-hmm. is when kids specialize at like five. Oh yeah, my kid's gonna be the next Roger Federer because he can hit this red dot, you know, thirty feet at five. Oh yeah, That's trying great. to be the Roger jack of all trades there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At between five and twelve, you want kids playing as many sports as possible. If they have one they really like, if you have a child who really really likes. you know one particular sport that's fine let them play that as much as as possible but don't forget just like an attorney if you don't know very much about the founding of the country or psychology you're not going to be a very good attorney you're just going to know the law mm-hmm. you're not going to know why people made the decisions they made and you're going to lose a lot of cases <laughs> because you won't know how to anticipate what the jury wants Okay. Um in fact you almost like read my mind there and uh jumped right ahead and talked about how one sport helps in complementing success in another. Um and I heard you say you were able to do track and tennis uh in different seasons. Then how come some of these sports became like an all year thing like year long? you know we are now playing tennis and the juniors are like month after month and in fact week after week even around the holidays they find themselves in tournaments there's not like a break there's not like a time that you can enjoy thanksgiving with the family and somebody asked me hey you said there's probably a tournament around christmas how come so how did we change and get to where we are today. You know, that's that's such a great question and it's interesting that you pose that question because normally I'm I'm almost caught off guard because I'm normally the one trying to ask other people that question to understand where they are with their child's career. Uh-huh. <laughs> so my answer to that is we put too much value on the wins and we as an organization as a federation and this is across the world not just here in the US um tournaments make money and athletes make money and having come from a large division 1 school um you see it in progress you see where one program essentially pays for the entire program you look at the value of some of the football programs the amount of money the football programs make for the universities uh-huh athletics makes a ton of money so and the more events you have uh the more money you can have now i'm fine with that if it's reinvested into the youth and it's reinvested into helping them manage their lives and learn more about themselves and learn how to grow into adults the problem is a lot of the money is spent publishing and marketing for more events uh-huh and i think that's a huge mistake um but i believe that all of this you have to play here you have to play now you have to play this you have to play this it's the win now mentality and it's and it's money and um i think the money is the second piece is a secondary piece i don't think i don't believe that that's the primary goal of the people who are engaged in uh setting the rules for athletics i want to be really clear i don't think they're money hungry mhm 
I do think that they believe that the best way to support everyone is to have everyone playing as much as possible so that all of the directors and the coaches can have work. And, and there is a place for that. You know, you do want to have the best people working, but not at the cost of the kids overtraining and playing too much. Our kids train too much and play too much. Oh, yeah. You said it um, wonderfully right there. And I think the intention certainly was good in the first place to uh, make it available to everyone year round so they can pick and choose yes. when they want to play and what they want to play. Uh, but I guess somewhere along the lines, everyone got lost and started chasing everything week after week. Um, yes. And when I hear you say, uh, play as many sports as possible between the ages of five and 12, how much is too much? And um, when and how does one identify what to pursue seriously or long term? Uh, that's that's a that's a, a another great question. Um, I was fortunate enough to have participated in a study um, with Dr. Nero at Emory, and um, you know he my daughter was a part of that study, and he wrote a, a fantastic piece on the amount of time a child should spend training. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to participate in the study with my family because I've always felt like that yearly number is the best way to estimate what a kid should do. And, and for reference, Dr. Nehru hypothesized that one hour per year of life is a good starting point and a good way to help regulate how much your child is training. So if you have a 10-year-old child, we'll use a nice round number, they should not spend more than 10 hours a week in a training environment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's a very sound policy. Unfortunately, we're doubling that number in most cases right now. But if we stick to that number, let's talk about um, how we can accomplish that with multiple sports. And the reality is, if you recall, between 5 and 12, a child is not going to pay attention much longer than about 30 minutes. Uh-huh. And what we need to do is stick to that number and we can accomplish everything that we want to accomplish. A child can play two sports. If we can focus them for 30 to 45 minutes, then they have only spent during their day 90 minutes training. Mm -hmm. Assuming they play two sports, they can go play a little soccer, they can go play a little tennis, then we can move on. Um, most of my, my youth development private sessions are 60 minutes. It's 30 minutes of handsy stuff and 30 minutes of athletic development. Mm -hmm. And for me, it worked out. It's worked out really well because you have the child focused and intentional for 30 minutes and you did one thing. And then the next 30 minutes you did one thing. And that's the fear. Uh, I know you asked me a multi-level question, uh, but that's the fear for most coaches that if we just do one thing, there'll never be enough time. Mm -hmm. And we have underestimated the most critical thing about kids. That kids, when they're young, learn everything. You can give them one thing at a time and they'll absorb it and then they'll move on to the next thing and absorb that and it's locked in. Mm -hmm. That's why it's best to learn a language early, right? Mm -hmm. Because their brains are just absorbing everything. When you get old, it's tough for us to absorb stuff once we get to this point where we're not as um, youthful as we used to be. <laughs> um, so... 
we have to remove that fear that we can teach one thing at a time. And I think if parents stop and look at the age of their child and they begin to budget those hours like they would do their, their monetary, their fiscal budget, and make sure that they're balancing that budget with other things like reading and, and educational fun and, you know, just jokes with the family. Um, one of the one of the best things I think you can do to, to balance the time is to have a kind of a family joke time where you just you sit back and you let your hair down and you relax and the kids know oh man, my parents aren't actually insane. They actually want me to be a happy person all of the time, (laughs) you know, and and get through life, you know. Makes sense, yeah. I think uh, that's a good insight right there and uh, a great tip for parents. Back in a moment with our guest on Fresh Leave Forever. Does it also make sense that um, parents work out when the children are very young? If the kid is involved in multiple sports, say doing even two or max three sports, just split up the time in the week uh, as to when they go to different sports? Yes. um, And I'm a huge proponent of budgeting the week like that as well. If your child plays two sports, then find the sport that they gravitate to, give them three days of that sport and two days of the other, and make sure they have two days where they they can just go out in the yard and, and have it be unstructured. And it's always interesting to watch what the child picks up in their unstructured time. For my daughter, she'll go play ping pong. She'll go, she will still do sports that involve her hands. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the best way to identify what your child actually wants. If you give them free time and they gravitate towards things that are very similar to their sport, you're starting to get an idea of what they'll ultimately like long term. My daughter will do two things with her free time that I can pretty much guarantee. She's going to pick up her Apple Pencil and start artwork, mm-hmm. which is very handsy. Or she's going to pick up a ping pong or a um, paddle ball racket. And so that tells me, okay, she really likes using her hands and she really likes tennis. If she goes and rides her, if she starts riding her bike out of nowhere, all of a sudden riding her bike and running and all those different things, okay, I need to start looking at triathlon. (laughs) (laughs) But she just won't do it. My son, if you give him free time, he's going down to the gym and he's kicking the heavy bag. He's punching the little uh, BAPS dummy that we have. He's, He's going down and he's doing those things. And he's a martial artist. So it's the children will give you the signals. They will make it very clear what they want to do. We just have to help them not feel like, okay, this day has to be this, this day has to be this, this day has to be this, this day has to be this. And when am I going to get to play this other sport that I like? And sometimes as parents, we force our opinion onto them. Mm-hmm. And as a sports performance and a mental coach, it's, it's, it's difficult to unravel that for the children because they will oftentimes come to their session with the belief that this is the only thing that I can do. And so when you give them a cross-training activity or you give them a mental task, um, for example, to defeat anxiety, you know, anxiety makes you sit there and overthink every single thing. It makes you think people are going to leave you if you don't do this. You know, I'm going to 
feel worthless if I don't do this. I have to succeed in this in order to make everyone else happy. That's a function of anxiety. And a lot of times we kind of put that on the kids by not giving them the space to explore and roam. And um, I probably drifted off into a mental session there. <laughs> no, not, not really. Uh, not really. So I guess that leads me to this question. How does one establish their identity in sports and how does that impact performance? So I guess you are now leading us uh, to this path of, okay, try and find out what exactly one is good at. And then, so how do we progress establishing an identity? And I know for all that I know about you and how passionate you are, you're going to say this calls for a whole different session altogether. And I'm totally open to that. But as such, if you can touch upon uh, how one can establish that and how it comes in the way of performance, I think that will benefit the listeners here. So um, that's such a good question. I, I can't believe you haven't been doing this for your whole career because that, that question is one that in the sports performance world and even in the sports medicine world because, um, you know, I have a ton of associates that are clinical sports medicine guys. And in both, of the, in both sides of that fence, the question comes up, okay, how – what and why, right? Like how, what, and why with these kids? How do they, how do they identify themselves? Why do they need to do it? And what does it, what does it impact? And I'm convinced that successful performance in a sport is you playing the way you see yourself. If you look at Roger Federer, mm-hmm. you look at Serena Williams and Rafa. So let, and Rafa is the perfect example of this because Rafa is so unique. If you look at Rafael Nadal, he turns his water bottles a certain way. He turns his bag a certain way. He His service prep is the longest. Some people say it's annoying, but mm-hmm. I recognize it for what it is. It's his identity. When children begin to express themselves in their sport, they perform well. If you take the physical aspect out of it, because I've seen players win matches that had no business winning those matches. Because the person on the other side was far more physical. They were faster. Um, They were, their ball speed was higher. But the player on the other side played their game. They played their game the way they enjoy playing it. And they were relaxed. They never got tight. And they were able to do things that no one could explain. It's like, how how are you manipulating this person like this when this person is number one in the country and this person is doing this and doing that? Mm-hmm. And Rafa was very much the same way. People were like, you shouldn't hit that buggy whip. You shouldn't hit that buggy whip. He's like, this is what I'm comfortable hitting. I'm actually right-handed. This shot is comfortable for me. I like it. Mm-hmm. No, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. Uh, I'm going to do that. All right, your service motion takes too long. You shouldn't do that. Uh, I'm going to do that. And now you have a person who's won 20 majors. <laughs> Clearly, (laughs) he should have done it. And um, I think that is the sweet spot for performance with with youth and performance as an adult. The sooner you identify what you are without society telling you what you should be, as soon as you identify what you are, then you're free 
to play your sport the way you want to play it. Mm -hmm. Everything has a technique, five. Everything. The way you walk has a technique. Every person walks differently. Locomotion, ambulation, all of those things are different. Because we all don't come out in a perfect mold. We were never designed to do that. If we need, if, if we were supposed to be in a perfect mold, the earth would be flat. It wouldn't be round with oceans and waves and all the other things that we have. Biology just doesn't support it. Mm -hmm. And it's important that that same theory, that same reality, that same whatever you want to call it exists inside of the athlete's mind. An athlete will only be as good as what they allow themselves to do. And we can train them until they're blue in the face. They can have all the single leg balance they want. I can have a perfectly uh, symmetrical athlete. If they don't believe in who they are, if they don't believe that what they're doing is the right thing, they'll never be successful. And we've done our girls a disservice with that as well, but that's probably a conversation for us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just going to ask you, you know, so how uh, does this uh, matter when girls have to establish their identity and how has society dealt with them? Yeah. And so, you know, I have a passion for coaching girls. In fact, our company, um, we turn away most boys because we, 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 we have hired specifically for the purpose of coaching girls and helping them. And I think that um, our society has created this image of what a girl is supposed to be mm -hmm. in life and in sports. And we have taken away the natural instinct of girls to be aggressive players, to be uh, players who are, are more artsy, players who uh, will take more risk, players who will live on the fringes of what's appropriate, technically speaking. And we've tried to create kind of robotic girls in multiple sports. And we want them to be, you know, either supermodels and, you know, perfectly eloquent young ladies who then uh, later on go on to marry another athlete or a physician or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. And as long as they do that, it's okay. But if they're a rebel and they want to cut a drop shot here or if they want to hit a slice there or if they're in track and they want to wear one leg and longer than the other, you know, one goes to the knee, one goes to the ankle, then we mm -hmm. have to say, oh, my gosh, what did your, what was your mother doing in this situation? <laughs> and, you know, it's, and notice how we always assign it to the mother instead of asking what the dad was doing, but that's a whole other thing for another call. And wait till my wife is here to protect me on that one. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's almost like uh, we have boxed them into anxiety yeah. cycles based on yes. the social definitions. Yes, yes, exactly. And and it's so interesting because if I took a sample of 10 girls, eight of them would say, well, I don't want this person to feel this way, or I don't want this person to see this, or I don't want this person to see that. And that is completely inappropriate for a successful athlete. Morality is one thing, okay? That's the parent's job. That's the family's job. That's the belief system, their religion, their spirituality, whatever it may be. That's their job. Mm -hmm. But in terms of athletics, I believe that it is completely inappropriate, completely inappropriate for a person to think, what will this person say if they see me take this shot or if they see me make this move? I think we have created this thing and it's deep, much deeper than I'm kind of going into, but I think we have as a society have created an image that's very difficult for our girls to get away from. 
Oh, that's uh, actually very um, impactful what you said. And I think it's very important to certainly have this discussion uh, in depth some other time as well. And I welcome you to do that here on the show. So what is your advice to parents and young folks in our society as to when they should start a sport and pursue it further? And by this, I mean, I know you said try several between 5 and 12. So when is it that they know, okay, I'm an Usain Bolt or I'm a Serena Williams or I'm a Rafa Nadal or uh, or like, say, you know, an NFL uh a football player that wants to pursue further, when is it that they determine or swimmer, okay, I just want to, this is what I want to do seriously. So at what age or at what phase should one make that determination? Because everyone now is navigating towards uh, certainly NCAA, which is the college sports here in the States uh, or the pro tour. Um, John Kabat-Zinn said, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And I think that is a great indicator for when it's time for your child to specialize. So oftentimes, I think we, we, we look at it as, well, whenever they have a goal, then I'm going to let them have just that, that, that goal specifically. Mm-hmm. Sometimes goals, though, can create anxiety. Because as soon as the child doesn't accomplish that goal, then they assign failure to it. And that failure creates anxiety. And I think it's critical in that quote that we have to accept the fact that there will always be waves. Our job is to help our young athletes learn how to surf those waves. And once I think a child begins to realize, you know what, I enjoy this sport because it's a sport and it gives me new challenges. That's when you start to specialize that child in that sport. Because what the child has identified is this is hard sometimes, but I just love it so much. Mm -hmm. And that's how Serena and Roger and Rafa and Usain Bolt and, you know, Michael Jordan, you can go on and on and on. At the end of the day, it was hard. And I enjoyed the fact that it was difficult. And if you put a child in a position where they're specializing and all they think is, this is hard, they're going to fail. They're going to burn out. They're going to move on. So many children are like, well, I'm just doing this so I can get a scholarship because that's what my parents told me I need to do. That's what I have to do. Well, that's not a good reason. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not a good reason. You're not surfing. You're drowning. You're just trying to push the wave back and you can't stop the wave from coming. <laughs> you just can't. Uh-huh. Yeah. And perhaps the kid is good in something else and uh, yes. they are just uh, being completely misled. So uh, takes me to another dimension here. Uh, physically and mentally, uh, you already touched upon certain aspects, but what are the advantages of playing sports and um how has your experience been doing it with kids? And in other words, what is uh, so significant about sports that uh, kids who are not uh, probably looking to just specialize in sports, but their passion is, say, science, technology, engineering, and math, 
or anything else, uh, not remain on the couch and not get stuck? So for me, I think uh, sports are a very simple proposition. I have a lot of coaches that will disagree with me on this. I think there is no value in sports other than fitness and problem solving. Mm-hmm. And now, both of those things can earn you an income if you're good enough at your sport. <laughs> so, well, even outside of uh, that, I think yes, uh, yes. those two aspects, uh, again, I think your modesty makes you say uh, that in a very subtle way, but I guess um, those two aspects are like huge life skills for yes. anyone to learn. So I think right there, that's one reason why even kids who are not engaged or do not want to be engaged in sports can do it as like a very mild activity, if you will. But just yes. go on with your thoughts again. Well, and, and I think and you're absolutely correct. And being physically fit means that you have the energy to move forward. I mean, it's, it's problem solving is only as effective as you are in terms of your endurance of wanting to solve the problem. And if you feel terrible, you're not going to put a lot of energy into solving a problem. And I think in our society, we miss that sometimes. I think we we implore people to just grind through it sometimes. And it's like, well, maybe you should have let them run track as a kid. You know, maybe maybe the fact that they're having some heart issues now or cholesterol issues, whatever the case may be, may be because, you know, you fed them junk and didn't let them run around. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's part of the problem too, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe um, they didn't run why. around at all and got stuck maybe, and yeah. sat on their beds and were reading yeah. or were watching Netflix or doing something. And, and candidly, technology. I think that's why a lot of countries are surpassing us in terms of the educational system and what children are willing to do in terms of of furthering their education or furthering their uh, problem-solving skills because their children have more opportunities to just go outside and run around. And we've put up so much concrete and so many zero lot lines and homes that our children are losing that ability to just open the door and go run around. Even I don't care if it's barefoot, two pairs of $300 shoes or whatever. I don't care what it is. They're just losing that opportunity to go out and run around and say, oh, wait a minute. Uh, the sun is starting to set. The street light's about to come on. I need to get back home. I mean, even that in and of itself is problem solving. I remember when I had to do that. Mm-hmm. If that street light came on and I were not home, there were consequences and repercussions. Absolutely. Myself not being in that door. Absolutely. I um, think... Um... It's a generation issue as well. Yes. I completely get what you're saying. So when you said you brought up other countries, so how's the trend in other places like Europe or let's take Asia? uh, Do they follow a similar approach as far as getting kids involved in sports? Or how do you think uh, they differ from us? And are they more successful than what it is in the United States? So it's interesting. I took a trip to Switzerland several years ago um, just to kind of broaden my horizon a little bit in terms of how players were training. And what I thought was very interesting, and, and I, you know, I, I, were, I had some clients who were friends of the Glaciers who worked with Manchester United, and, you know, they owned the team. The Glaciers owned Manchester United at the time. And so 
I had kind of experienced some of it then, but I wanted to have a little closer dig, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, probably if you use an archaeological term. Um, and what I noticed was cross-training and bringing in multiple elements of other sports were not optional. It was a basic part of the training. So for a tennis player, they would do a soccer warm-up mm-hmm. where they're dribbling a soccer ball through cones. And look, a number of the kids had no clue how to dribble that ball through the cone, but they had to sit down and figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. Another another program was using chess as mental coaching. And they were they were basically only allowing certain children to play one type of defense, you know, and one person to play one type of offense. Okay, you have to play Sicilian or today you're only playing with pawns and, and queens. Mm-hmm. And it was like, wait a minute, I only get a I only get all the pawns and one queen. How am I supposed to play chess like this? But it was teaching the kids how to problem solve and then apply it in their athletics, or it was teaching them how to play another sport and be able to use those skills in that sport in your next sport. And in other countries, there is not that they don't have this um, idea that if you don't get your 10,000 hours every month, which is physically impossible, mm-hmm. um, that you'll be a failure. I mean, if you look at Iga Swiatek, I think this is a phenomenal example uh-huh. for the rest of the world. No juniors ranking until she was 16. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, not. I mean, think about that in the context of even the way your own has had to approach her career. And Iga Swiatek had no ranking mm-hmm. until she was 16. Her first major junior event was Junior Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. And she wins it. And then she comes out and is in the finals of, 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 of the French. Mm-hmm. If that doesn't fly in the face, Arnia Sabalenka, no junior career virtually at all. Now she's top 10 in the world. Oh, yeah. And Iga Swartek went on to win the French Open. So yes. Yes. Um, that's just phenomenal. And uh, so right there, I think um, you also emphasized that just hours on the court doing one thing is not meant to be the norm, whereas how we make use of that time and make it productive for the kids in terms of teaching them different skills that is going to help them in their primary sport. Uh, I think that's a huge takeaway from what you said right there. Uh, Did you try to do something different with your children then? what you did when you were a youth, when you were a youth. I did. Um, and I will credit Richard Williams for this, um, not just because of his last name. Um, people often make the mistake, I think, of assuming that Richard only had his children doing one thing, but that's because they don't know what it's like growing up in Compton. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just getting tennis balls to a court in Compton is problem solving. You know, they didn't have baskets like we have. They they had to go and negotiate at a grocery store to get a shopping cart. Can I just buy one of your shopping carts? Mm-hmm. And that's part of the story that I think is never told. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of people that were near him. My daughter has a coach who grew up on the same street and played the same sport, you know, and was on those courts with them. And, you know, just listening to those stories of how 
everything was a negotiation. Everything was problem solving just to get the time to train. And he would always have the girls with him. With my children, I've tried to do the same. I've tried to expose them to, here's what it's like setting up the academy. Here's what it's like setting up the sessions. Here's why I can't talk to you about why that girl was crying today. Because here's what the HIPAA law is. Here's what this law is. Uh And I've tried to expose them to a a, a broader mental uh, platform than I had. My father was huge on reading. He was huge on reading and big on directing, but not really big on here are the guts of it and sit down and let's work through it. Uh He was very much, this is what you do and you just do it. And listen, my father was extraordinarily successful, but he was also... um, a very structured and defined man. Yeah, right there is that difference between uh, being structured and highly successful and taking a multifaceted approach and exposing your children. That way they learn to deal with adversity, vulnerability, and develop that resilience, correct? Yes, yes, yes. And, and, you know, the mistake I made with my, and, I, and this is an honest mistake, the mistake I made with my daughter at first was, um, you know, she's broken every growth chart and, you know, she took after some of my aunts who are incredibly tall. And, and I looked over there and I was like, man, look at this athlete, man. This is great. You know, her mom was a gymnast. Her dad was a multi-sport athlete. This is great. This is going to be exciting. And I, and I And I started to go to that place where all of these other pieces weren't brought in. And then as I started to look at the anxiety that she was getting because of what I was doing, I was like, okay, I need to back up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now she's starting to be free and she's, she's doing the things that will make her successful. And, and she doesn't think about a ranking. She doesn't talk about any of those things, which I love. Um, but even I almost made the mistake of uh, minimizing the importance of diversifying what our child, what our children see and teaching them how to be professionals you know, in case, you know, I had an injury, I, I injured my hip and, and I injured my back and I had spinal surgery. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't matter how good an athlete you are. It can always end at a moment's notice. Oh, that's uh that's such a harsh reality, but we all have to uh, deal with it as athletes and athlete families. Right. And uh, yep. already, whatever you're saying uh, is opening up eyes and ears here, uh, in me as to what mistakes we probably have made as parents, though we all think, okay, we want to put the very best foot forward and we try to do the very best for our uh, child. I think right there, you know, yeah, it's, it's just hitting me personally too. That's cool. Well, I, I, you know, it's, it's, um, if I had one thing that I would tell a parent or a guardian or, you know, whomever it may be, coach, um, advisor, counselor. Um, <clears throat> when a child comes to you and they're confused or they're frustrated, there's a fundamental reason for that. And most of the times it's because of something that they feel from us. Mm-hmm. Children are pretty free in the beginning. But many times because of the way we begin to um, kind of posture ourselves and position ourselves, we create doubt in them. And if I could encourage coaches and parents and trainers and guardians to do anything, it would simply be to 
Never condemn. Never condemn what a child is trying to understand, as long as it's moral, of course. Mm-hmm. But never, never, never condemn what a child is trying to create, because that the beauty in that creation is they're learning far more than the textbook tells us they're learning, and that ability to find oneself freely without the condemnation of adults is so critical in the learning process. Mm-hmm. And if sports is truly to be a mental health safe haven, which I think it should be, we can't be the ones creating the anxiety by condemning what a child wants to learn. So if a kid comes to you and says, can I hit all drop shots today? Yes, let's hit all drop shots. Let's hit drop shots for 30 minutes. You know, your lesson plan is not as important as what that kid's brain is it's infatuated with at the moment. Mm-hmm. And we're so afraid that if I let a kid hit drop shots for 30 minutes that they're going to go into a match and never hit a ground stroke. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, we're so afraid of that. But the reality is the child has something that they have attached themselves to that they believe they're good at. And I've seen more kids be successful just because they could hit one drop shot at on match point and they got so much confidence from it. And then the next match, they didn't hit one drop shot. They didn't hit one. But it didn't matter. They got to the next match because of that one little bit of confidence that they had. And we have to be okay with letting children be free of our agenda. That would be the one thing I would love everybody to just do. Oh, I think right there, right there, you have given the recipe to uh, as to how best one can handle what they want to select and pursue. So fascinating insights, Melvin, as always. And, uh, I think definitely I can already think of two or three topic areas for you to come back on the show and uh, enlighten the audience uh, with all the wisdom that you possess. And thanks so much for joining us today on the show and uh, uh, wish you the very best and to your family as well in everything you do. My pleasure. Continue to be safe out there. Bye. Thank you. Will too. You too. Take care. Bye.